But if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the people of their to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted. Seven days. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use your word, that you would use your word first and foremost to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see his magnificence, that we might long to tell others of him. And we also ask, O Lord, that you would use your word to make us more and more in the image of Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So we have come now to the end of the book of 1 Samuel. I think what we have seen is that this is a tragic book. When we look at the entirety of the book we see the tragedy. It's more than just a series of a few well-known passages, like Samuel being dedicated in the temple, in the place of the Lord, or David fighting off Goliath. No, 
What we see here is a book that begins with the tragedy of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and their rebellion against the Lord and the defeat that followed from it in chapter 4. We saw the tragedy of Israel rejecting the prophetic message of Samuel the prophet in chapter 8 in seeking their own way and their own king. And the bulk of this book has actually been the tragedy of the kingship of Saul that had started out so well and now comes to the point of final destruction this morning. Now we are at the end. And so what do we do with this chapter? What can we learn from it in its depressing sadness? What I would like us to do is to ask ourselves three questions. Three questions that come from this chapter, but are informed by the entirety of our study of the book. The first question I want us to ask is, what is tragedy? What does it mean when something is tragic? When we use that phrase, we often use it to mean some sort of accident or happenstance that could have happened or could not have happened that is bad. We see no purpose in it. And we begin to speak of tragedies like natural disasters. But somehow we even bring it into things that are attacks of wickedness and evil. We speak of the the tragedy of 9-11, which was really not a tragedy, but rather an atrocity, an attack. So what is tragedy? The second question I want us to ask ourselves is, what have you learned? What have you learned from this study of 1 Samuel? This book is here for a reason. What has it taught us about God, our relationship with Him, and where we go from there? And then finally, we have to ask the question, in the midst of the darkness of this chapter, where is the hope? Because a chapter like this can leave us feeling hopeless. So we ask, where is the hope? What is tragedy? What have you learned? And where is the hope? Let's begin then by looking at this scene that unfolds before us and ask the question, what is a tragedy? Now, it's almost as if our author has been putting off this text. He's somewhat of a procrastinator, we might say. This story could have followed easily upon the end of chapter 28. That's, of course, when we saw the prophecy of what would happen to Saul and his sons, when the Lord told Saul through Samuel that he would be destroyed, that his sons would die, and that the kingdom would be taken from him, just as the Lord had prophesied in chapter 15. But we have been diverted now for two chapters with the story of David. Our author has drawn our attention away from this difficult story, and we've been seeing David and his success. Now, there is something very interesting about the beginning of this chapter. Hebrew grammar works differently than English grammar. And so you may have noticed this as you read your Old Testament. It comes out even in the translation. 
The way that Hebrew narrative storytelling works is something like this. This text will say, And they went to this place. And they saw these people. And he said this to them. And what the Old Testament does is what we all learned in English grammar, you are never to do. You don't start a sentence with the word and. It's bad grammar. But Hebrew does that all the time. It's its way of storytelling. And the interesting thing about that is we don't see that at the beginning of this chapter. Normally, a story would be and, and what we call a finite verb. Saw, ran, killed, went. But here we have, in English, what we call a participle. An ing verb. Running, going, saying. And what our author is trying to do for us in this grammar is to let you know in broad letters... That what's happening here in chapter 31 is happening at the same time as the events at the end of chapter 30. It's not as if one follows the other. It's almost as if if we had picture in picture on our television or a split screen or two monitors on our desk. Both these events would be playing out simultaneously. And that just heightens the sadness of this. Because you have to imagine, while the tragedy of chapter 31 is going on, a great victory is being won by David. He is recovering all that was lost. And so, this is something that we need to see, and the story is told quite quickly and shortly. It's really summed up in one sentence, in one verse, In verse 1, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now you and I both know there are 12 more verses to this chapter, but we really don't need to read anything else, do we? We know exactly what's happened. This is the end of the story. It's all over. In just a few words, the text tells us of the great downfall of Saul and the army of Israel. One sentence, after all of this built-up tension, after all of Saul's fretting, after Saul meeting with the witch, after all of the military maneuvering, how the Philistines had come out onto the plain with their chariots and how the Israelites had moved to the mountainside to try to counter the military might of the chariots after all of this that's gone on, in just a few words, we read that all is lost. Now, this is even more stark when we realize that the book of 1 Samuel covers about a hundred years of history. I know it doesn't seem that long. We've only been in it a few months. Maybe it seems like 50 years, but it hasn't seemed like 100 at least. And so, after 100 years of struggle, we're actually right back where we started. Almost in the same place. Just near Aphek. And you know what? Nothing has changed. The same kind of battle in verse in chapter 31 is the battle that we saw in chapter 4. The Philistines defeating the Israelites. The, the Israelites relying on someone other than God to their own detriment. Now, this should not surprise us as we have been studying 1 Samuel. 
It shouldn't surprise us that not much has changed because not much has changed over a hundred years. Israel is still following flawed leaders. Israel is still not trusting the Lord. It's as if they're replaying not just the events, but the attitudes of the heart of a hundred years earlier. And so Saul's life ends the same way that he has lived it. It is that Saul is alone. That God is nowhere to be found. And as we look out, Saul is not looking for God either. You see, we cannot really say that the death of Saul is a tragedy because it is rather instead the fruit of his disobedient life. He dies like he lived, without God, not seeking God. He doesn't look for God. This situation is desperate. The text tells us that the battle pressed hard. Against Saul. And the word there is very vivid. That verb pressed hard means it is violent. It is fierce. You can almost imagine the clash of arms, the clanging of swords, the throwing of spears, the sound of arrows as they flit through the air. It is very hard upon Saul. He likely would already know that his sons are dead. And that shouldn't surprise him because Samuel had already told him that would be the case. So what does Saul do now? Well, actually, what's most instructive is what he doesn't do. What we don't see. We hear no cry out to God. We hear no appeal from Saul for mercy. Instead, all that is left before us is a surrender to despair. Saul has no hope. He seeks no hope. And even now, in the most desperate strait of his life, he still cannot bring himself to repent and go to the Lord. And you see, what this shows us is that a life of disobedience always catches up to us. Now, you may know someone, or you may have heard it, that some people lie and cheat and steal their way to the top. That they become a success through wickedness and sin. But no one ever finds comfort in that, do they? Who says on their deathbed, I wish I had cheated a few more people? Or I hope I have an opportunity to tell a few more lies. No one does that. And the thing is, we may say when things look good and when we are healthy that we don't care about death. We don't pay any attention or any mind. But when we begin to stare death in the face, that is a very different thing. And so what we need to understand is that today is the day to come to the Lord. Not a day later. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture tells us. Do not wait until you have to look over the bitterness of your regret and loss 
in your life. If you this morning do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must run to Him today. Do not say, I will think about it when I get home. You may not get home. Do not say, well, when my children are older. Because we are not promised anything. Day upon day, Saul put off repenting. Day upon day, he put off going to God. And what happens is eventually, whether it's long or short, you come to that last day. Because you see, we don't not come to Jesus because we run out of time. We don't come to Jesus because we run out of heart. We don't want to submit to the Lord. This is the fruit of a disobedient life. And so we can't really say, in Saul's case, that this is a tragedy. It's not unexpected. But maybe as we read on, the rest of the beginning of the chapter contains a tragedy. Because we see in verse 2 that the Philistines overcome Saul's sons and they strike down Jonathan and Abinadab. And Melchishua. And so what we see here is the first one to actually fall is Jonathan. All is lost. His brothers, the battle, his father, even his own life. And we can't help but be sorrowful here. If this were a dramatized film, at the time of Jonathan's death would be the time when all of the men in the audience would have something get into their eyes that would cause a little bit of moisture or a tear or two. If we were to be sorrowful for anyone, it would be Jonathan, after all. If anyone deserved to avoid this fate, it's Jonathan. He was loyal to David. You remember, even giving up his kingdom because of the promise of God to David. He had faith and trust in the Lord, even when David did not. You recall that he came to David and encouraged David and strengthened him in the Lord by repeating the promises of God to him. Jonathan remained steadfast, even in the face of death, by the side of his father. And as we read this story, it's this kind of a story that could make us doubt The Lord. Because after all, in our way of thinking, Saul deserves everything he's got coming to him. He did bad things. Bad things should happen to him. But not Jonathan. Jonathan has done good things. So Jonathan deserves good things to happen to him. You see, we are tempted to judge based on the works that we see. And so what we wind up doing is judging God and His actions based on our standards and our judgment. But the reality that we must realize, and I pray that Jonathan helps you to see this in your own soul, is that no one deserves good. There is a saying that goes something like this. There is a problem of pain in the world. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? But the truth is, is that that's not the reality of the world. The Bible shows us that the reality of the world is not a problem of pain. It is a problem of pleasure. It is why does anything good happen to bad people? People who are sinners... 
People who have rebelled against the Lord God. People who deserve judgment and death and hell. Why does anything good happen? Because Paul tells us there is none who does good. There is none who is righteous. And so the reason that this is not a tragedy, that what happens to Jonathan is not a tragedy, is because of his faithfulness in the midst of all of this. Jonathan is exactly where God would have him to be. At his father's side, being faithful. And so when his life was lost, that was not the end of Jonathan. He was obeying God and being faithful. And it is not tragic to remain faithful in God's calling. This is something that we must take to heart. Because you may be here this morning saying, I don't know what I can do. I'm in a marriage that is not working out how I hoped it would. We struggle and we fight. How do I get out of this? This is a tragedy. No, it's not. Because you're exactly where God would have you to be. Faithful to your spouse. Standing next to them. Going forward. Some of you young people may be saying to yourself, I wish I could do anything I wanted whenever I wanted. Why do I have to have this, now this may be a little dramatic, this tragedy of having to obey my parents. If only I could be on my own. I'm smart enough by now, right? I could do things for myself. If only I wasn't burdened with this tragedy. And the answer is, it is not tragic. You are exactly in the place where God has placed you. He has given you his word that you are under your parents and their authority and you are to obey them for your good as God blesses you, as he brings you to the fruitfulness of adulthood. The Lord has blessings for you that include a time under the authority of your parents. You see, we have to understand that Jonathan's loss is not final and is not a tragedy because of this. I don't know that there's any better quote that encapsulates it than the well-known quote from the martyred missionary, Jim Elliot. Jim said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, faithfulness to God is never tragic, no matter what the circumstances surround them. This is the story of the servants of God. And this is our story. We have to look past the present. God would have us look to Him in faith, to trust His goodness, to trust His provision beyond what we can see. Isn't this the story of the life of Moses, of Joshua, of Daniel, of Peter, of Paul? Looking past present circumstances to the Lord. Well, the second question that comes from this text for us this morning is what have you learned? 
We spent some time studying the book of 1 Samuel, but specifically from this text, what have we learned? And I have two sub-questions, as it were. The first is, what is the Lord's Word? What have we learned about God's Word? Now, as we read chapter 31, it's easy to get caught up in the disaster, isn't it? In verse 1, Israel flees. In verse 2, Saul's sons are struck down. In verse 3, Saul is wounded and is in agony and pain. In verse 4, he falls on his own sword. In verse 5, his armor bearer falls on his sword. In verses 5 and 6, everybody dies. Saul dies. His sons die. The armor bearer dies. His whole bodyguard dies. It's easy to get depressed here, isn't it? And to kind of sink in a hole. We think that this is a great failure before our eyes. And this is natural because for you and for me, our focus is so often what is right in front of us. Now, I'll give you just one illustration. Think about the last election that did not go the way that you wanted it to. How did you feel as all of the predictions rolled in? as states were called for a candidate, or as a race was called for a certain candidate that you were not happy about? Did you have a tendency to think, well, everything's over now. I don't know how we're going to survive. The whole country's shot. Maybe I should, you know the famous phrase, I'm going to have to move to Canada, as if somehow they don't have elections in Canada. By the way, they do. I grew up near Canada. They do. Go to Canada for the donuts, not the politics. But this is what we do. We get caught up in what's right in front of our eyes. And we see failure. Now, think about sports when your favorite team loses the all-important game. You go into depression. You never wonder, will we ever get back to this point again? Why can't it be our time? Let me tell you, I've been there. Buffalo Bills fan. Four times in a row. This is what happens. Or perhaps there is no tragedy as tragic as the young child who wakes up on Christmas morning, all excited and goes down, opens every gift and finds that the one gift that they just had to have isn't there. How can I possibly go on? I was waiting all year for this gift. My life is over. Now that sounds humorous. But all of these are just a variation on a theme. It's being obsessed with what's before us and our circumstances. And in reality here, what we see in chapter 31 is not unexpected. God's word has just found Saul. In exactly the same way, a hundred years earlier, God's word found Hophni and Phinehas. Israel and Saul may be fallen, but God's word never falls short. And we see it here in this disaster. This doesn't happen outside of God's view. It doesn't happen against the will of God. This is the will of God. Twice the Lord has prepared us for this. In chapter 15 and in chapter 28. Now, granted, we would rather have a happy ending, right? We would rather have a happy fulfillment of God's word. 
But what chapter 31 shows us is that even the darkness is not outside of God's purpose and power. You see, we cannot fall for the view that bad circumstances somehow show us that God is weak and that Satan, the enemy of our soul, is strong. If we do that, then every circumstance will send us in a tizzy. We'll have no firm footing to stand on. So how can we take comfort from this? This seems like a very bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? But what I want you to think about is this. If God's word is true here, then God's word is true always. God's word of assurance to David is also true. He is faithful. When God gives us his word, it is always true and we can count on it. The same God that spoke his word of destruction on Saul is the God who said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is a promise of God's word that is always true. It does not change based on our circumstances. We can rely upon the word of God and the promise of Jesus. Well, a second sub-question comes to us. And as we think about this, we ask ourselves, can it get any worse? Saul is dead. His sons are dead. Israel has fled. The cities have been captured. Can it possibly get any worse? And if you've been with us through any period of 1 Samuel, you know the answer is yes. It can get worse. Just when we think we've taken all we can possibly take, the next day dawns. And when the day dawns, we might be looking for a glimmer of hope. If this were a fictional depiction, we might expect the camera to shift to David as he gathers up his men for a gallant rescue and a counterattack to destroy all the Philistines immediately. And then we can all shout, Hooray! Right? But I don't see that in my chapter 31. Do you? I'll give you a preview. You don't even see that in chapter 1 or chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. That's not what happens. The Philistines won't let us have that glimmer of hope. Look at what happens in verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they find Saul and his sons. Now, what you have to understand is that this is incredibly unusual. No matter what kind of a defeat you suffered on the battlefield, you did not leave your king lying on the ground. There's a reason for that. We're going to see it. Because, you see, the enemy would demoralize your nation by desecrating the king and by declaring that you had no hope 
and that they were completely victorious. And so what we see now is how complete the victory of the Philistines is and how complete the disaster that has come upon Israel that they didn't even take Saul and his sons off the field of battle. They just left them there as they fled. And so you can just imagine the glee of the Philistines. What they do is they take their bodies and they mangle them. Look at verse 9. They cut off Saul's head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Excuse me, and to the people. There is no doubt about the Philistines' intention here. They want the news to be spread far and abroad. And specifically, the news is brought to their idols. And do you know what the news story is? Dagon is great. And the Lord is a loser. We're victorious. And they proclaim it throughout their temples and throughout their people. And so we even see this in the language that is used here. In the days of the New Testament, for the most part, many Israelites could not read and speak Hebrew. I know that sounds odd, but think about being spread throughout all of the Mediterranean world. And the language of the Mediterranean world was Greek, in the same way that so much of the language of our world now is English. You know, we go overseas and we think, if someone doesn't understand us, we just speak louder and slower. And they will understand English. Right? That's what we do. Well, in these days, it was Greek. And so in Jesus' day, there was a translation made of the Old Testament in Greek. You may have heard of it. It's called the Septuagint. Now, what is this? how is this important, Pastor? Well, they translated 1 Samuel. And they translated 1 Samuel 31. And even verse 9. And you know what the word is in verse 9 for good news? It's gospel. The Philistines were gospeling. They were sending out the good news. A momentous announcement to their people. A world-changing, life-changing message to their people. It was an opportunity for them to vindicate their entire worldview. Now, on the one hand, this should fill us with sadness. We should see the dishonor of God and of His name as being worse even than the defeat that the Israelites suffered. But we should also see the emptiness of the Philistines' gospel. Right? When was the last time you met a Philistine? Not around anymore, are they? Dagon's not so great, is he? And yet the church has persevered through thousands of years. You see, we know the end of the story. And the end of the story is God wins. And so, this should cause us to think about our gospel about our good news. So let me ask you a question. What is the most important thing in your life? What constantly rolls off your tongue? 
What do you think about and mull over and speak to others about? What gives meaning to you? Sports victories? Money? Fame? Respect? There is only one lasting good news. It's the good news that affects us and that changes us forever. The Lord Jesus Christ had a victory greater than any Philistine victory. Do you rejoice to hear that? Do you long to have it spread abroad? Jesus' victory was over death itself. Jesus has conquered hell and sin and death. We need not fear the grave. We can conquer sin. We need not fear the punishment and judgment of hell because of Jesus' victory at the cross. If you've experienced that victory, you cannot help but share it, but spread it. To take it from place to place, declaring that good news so that all would know that the world has changed. The glory of Jesus and what he has done must be paramount and foremost in our lives. Well, we end with a brief conclusion. A third question. Where is the hope? And we have to ask this question, don't we? As we look at the text of chapter 31, it's so dark and hopeless. Where is the hope that we can find? There is a brief conclusion at the end of this chapter. And while it is brief, it is important. At this point, everything is sadness and shame. But there is a ray of light, a reminder that hope lives because the Lord lives. And this is crucial for you and me today. Because we often experience defeat and shame, don't we? We see the world out there proclaim its good news against the Lord. And we must remember that God is the one who reigns. The psalmist puts it this way. For his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The Lord is going to send us here a reminder of better things. Do you remember how Saul started out? Do you remember all the hope and encouragement of his kingship? Do you remember what was the very first thing that Saul did? The very first thing that Saul did was to deliver a city from an attack of an army. You remember they were being attacked by a cruel and wicked man named Nahash. And when they tried to negotiate with him, he said, I'll only negotiate if you let me gouge out your eyes and make you slaves and make you fools and mock you. That town that Saul delivered was Jabesh-Gilead. And so now God, by His grace, reminds us of His presence in the darkness through the men of Jabesh-Gilead. The Lord had spared that town. And now they are able to repay their kindness such as they can. 
It shows us that there's hope because of God's grace. Now, it doesn't undo the tragedy at Gilboa. But it is a reminder that love does not forget, even in death. These men are loyal to Saul, and they don't want to see him mistreated even in death. And so the hope comes from God's gracious act, and this is made possible through the faith that these men have in the Lord. Now think about what was involved in this action. This was an act of daring because the Philistines had just won a total victory. This was an act of strength. They had a 20-mile round trip to go to go recover the bodies. And it was an act of courage because it would give hope to Israel. If you're like me, you read this text and you wonder, how were they not caught? How did they do this? Did the Philistines not set any guards? But you see, they had faith that the Lord was still king. He was still worth serving in the midst of this tragedy. The Lord was their focus. And so their faith was well served. Don't get me wrong, in this snapshot there is much grief. The battle has gone all wrong. A hundred years have gone by and there has been no progress or improvement. The kingdom of God looks like it is a complete failure, doesn't it? It looks as if the enemy is triumphant. But it's not what we see that's important. Do you remember God's statement to Samuel earlier in the book? The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance of this circumstance and is discouraged and despondent. God looks on the heart and he knows the substance of what is going on. Israel might be scattered. But remember, the Lord has prepared their shepherd for them in the person of David. And in reality, all God has been doing through this is stripping away the idols of Israel, the idol of a king that they had, the idol of looking to their own work and might that they had. And in the midst of this tragedy, God is laying the foundations of his victory. How like the Lord this is. You know, there was another day that seemed blacker than any other. The enemy thought he had triumphed. God is dead. We'll finally be free from God forever. But Jesus is more powerful than death. And on that black day, God won the victory through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is more powerful than death. He is more powerful than hopelessness. He is more powerful than your sin. So what have we learned from this book? We've learned that God keeps his word. And in his word, God has promised life to all who trust in Jesus. We learn that the good news of Jesus cannot be contained... It is good news for everyone, and it comforts us 
to tell it to others. And we've learned that there's hope in the darkness. Hope because Jesus is there. And because Jesus has purchased the way out. The Lord our God is faithful. Do you trust Him? Will you hear Him? Will you risk all on His word? That is what faith is. Let's pray.